Welcome to episode three of The Rise of the Customer. My guest today is Paul Barber, Chief Executive of Brighton Hove Albion Football Club, a premiership side based in the southeast of the UK. Paul joined the board of Brighton Hove Albion FC as the club's chief executive in June 2012 and was promoted to deputy chairman in November 2018. Now in his ninth season with the club, Paul has overseen significant success on the field with the club achieving automatic promotion to the Premier League in the 2016-2017 season, having reached three playoff semi-finals in the years leading up to that. The current 2020-2021 season will see Brighton playing at the top level of English football for a club record equaling fourth successive season. In this conversation, I really wanted to understand what customer experience means in the world of sport and in particular in the top flight of English football. Paul talks very candidly about the joy and the challenges of being the CEO in a sport that he has been passionate about for most of his life. He describes how the team at Brighton carefully design and manage all aspects of the fan experience and also gives some great insights into what drives the culture at the club. I hope you get a lot out of this episode and find the conversation and the points made highly relevant in any sector of business. As a season ticket holder at Brighton, this was a thoroughly enjoyable conversation and I hope you enjoy it too. Hi Paul, welcome and uh, thanks very much indeed for coming along and agreeing to do this podcast with me. Really looking forward to this conversation. As a season ticket holder, I know quite a bit about Brighton Hove Albion, obviously, and I also know a fair bit about you from my research prior to this conversation, but there's no doubt loads that I don't know and I'm sure my listeners won't know much either. So perhaps you could, by way of introduction, give us a bit of a, an intro as to your background and how you got to where you are today. Uh, sure. Well, first of all, thanks for uh, having me on the podcast. It's nearly 25 years since I first started working in the football industry. Before that, I, I worked for major blue chip companies like Barclays Bank and what was then Abbey National, now Santander Bank, and a number of other uh, blue chip organizations. My background is in marketing and communications. So I've spent a lot of time working with brands and consumers and, and, and working through customer experiences. So that's been, you know, part of my, I suppose, education and training. But football has always been my passion. So getting the opportunity to first move into football in 1996 uh, was a great opportunity for me personally and professionally. And I've been pretty much here ever since. And, um, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to work with the national team, with the England team, with the club I supported as a kid, Tottenham Hotspur, then moved to North America to work in Major League Soccer with Vancouver, and then eight years ago back to Brighton, and obviously worked with Brighton in both the Championship and now for the last four seasons in the Premier League. So uh, it's been quite a journey. It must be wonderful to have secured such a set of prominent positions and roles within a sport which you absolutely love. Yeah, I, I was told very early on in my career that if you could combine your head and your heart in the same place, then you, you've got the best chance of having a, a successful career and a happy life. And I've followed that advice and, you know, fortunately found my way into to football through the routes that I was professionally trained to, to do in marketing and communications and, you know, I've used the industry experience I had before moving into football to help me through the the football industry as well and obviously you know commercial aspects of football are very important to the way we operate these days we are a business we are a, a top level sport but we rely hugely on major brands to support us all the way so certainly being able to combine my early years the early years of my career and the experience i had working in large organizations with what i do today has has definitely been a, a positive i can imagine and um i mean i guess any football fan would be envious to uh, to hold the position that you hold but i guess it's not all uh, sweetness and light the whole time so um perhaps i mean i'm sure people will be intrigued to understand what the role of a ceo actually is at a club like brighton um, can you give a sense of what you do and, and how you work with the other members of the team sure i mean i think the key difference between being a chief executive of a football club or chief executive of any other business is, is the nature of who we are and what we do means that every decision you make is played out very much in the public domain so you know lots of people whether it's fans of the club or other key stakeholders will invariably you know review and comment on decisions that you make and not every business has that kind of scrutiny the positives of that of course is that the, the business's profile is significantly high all of the time which is which is a significant positive in itself the negative is obviously the scrutiny can sometimes come with a you know a, a set of challenges whether they are media challenges or whether they are fan challenges or whether they are sponsor challenges 
simply because the profile means that that literally everything we do is is scrutinized to the nth degree but um you know I, I, overall i think you know the football industry benefits more from the profile and the scrutiny than it doesn't but it does you know from a chief executive's point of view mean that you have to have an understanding of every area of the club so you know my role day to day can vary enormously from from media related in, uh, interviews to sponsor meetings to meetings with the head coach meeting with the owner staff gatherings a whole range of of, of different uh, responsibilities to be honest no two days are the same no two weeks are the same and you know all i would say is it's a much easier job when the first team is winning than when it's not and that's uh, i think that's probably the same for every football club chief executive across the world let alone in the premier league but um you know it's an emotional business and part of my job is to try and take the emotion out of the decisions that I have to take to try and make sure that I don't get too high on the highs or too low on the lows so that whenever we are faced with an important decision at an emotional time, we make the best decision for the football club, both in the short, medium and the long term. Football as an industry, because it's very much results driven, does tend to be, if you allow it to be, very short term. And you know, part of my job is to to look to the longer term, to make sure the club's financially sustainable for, for, for the long term and to make sure decisions that we do have to take in the short term don't harm that. Yeah, okay, thank you for that. That's really interesting. And, you know, I can certainly imagine there are a whole group of people listening to this thinking, yeah, how on earth would you make a, a rational decision when the chips are down, when you've been losing and yet, you know, you know the fundamentals are probably right and you're not going to improve them by some short-term decision-making, which people are probably watching for you to make at any point in time. I mean, just turning to customer experience, I mean, obviously, you know, you've talked about the business aspects of the club and I know you've spoken about customer experience in the past at events. So, I mean, could I just sort of first of all ask you, I mean, who who are your customers? Who do you regard as your customers? And, and how do you manage customer experience at a premiership football club? Well, we've got a range of different customers. I mean, the, the primary customers of any football club, and they don't like to be called customers, are the fans. And, you know, the football fans of the club come in lots of different shapes and sizes. You know, we have long-term fans who've been supporting us all their lives. We have newer fans that have moved into the city and have adopted us. We've got corporate fans who support us through their business interests and, and you know, the entertaining that they do around the, the football club. And then, of course, we've also got other stakeholders like sponsors who also consider themselves to be fans of, of the club because they, they invest in us in order to build their own brands. But, you know, the, the, the whole concept of customer experience in football goes all the way back to uh, the early part of this century, back end of 1999, early 2000s, when the Football Task Force, led by David Meller, determined that football fans were simply not being treated properly and that football clubs had to adapt to a more customer-centric, a more customer-focused approach. And I could certainly relate to that back in the sort of 70s and 80s when, when I used to go to football with my dad and we were season ticket holders at the club that we supported. Letters and phone calls would often go unanswered, completely unanswered, not just for days or weeks, but forever. We weren't that important to the football club. If we had a complaint, it wasn't listened to. If we had a query, it wasn't answered. And certainly for me, at the back end of the, the 1990s, you know, which was really towards the beginning of my, my football career, it was, it was actually quite enlightening for someone to think of football fans from a customer point of view. You know, there are challenges within football clubs on a match day where queries do need to be answered, where fans do have a right to a reply to a particular complaint. And so football clubs at that time, at the, in the early 2000s, were mandated to set up customer relations functions for the first time. And to this day, customer charters exist in every club. It's mandated by the league, whether it's the Premier League or the English Football League, the EFL, to provide the charter. It's got to be published. It's got to be visible. It's got to be transparent to supporters. And most clubs still operate, whether they call it a customer relations department or a supporter relations department in our case, those departments are there to make sure that fans do have a voice within the football club. And although they want to be known as fans, we ensure they're treated as customers. And I think for a long time, football clubs have, have relied on the fact that football fans don't tend to move away from their football club. You know, they tend to be loyal, even if they're treated badly. We tend to look at it a different way in that we want them to enjoy the experience they have when they come to us on a match day. And that means treating them as, as, as customers, but thinking of them as fans. And in a lot of the work that we do and a lot of the businesses that we work with, we often think about customer experience as almost 
trying to conduct an orchestra. You know, you've got many moving parts and you're trying to get everything to kind of play in symphony, if you like, you know, something that's kind of designed, if you like. I mean, is that something you can relate to in terms of thinking about the experience end-to-end at Brighton? It is. I mean, the, the, again, the one key difference with football clubs is, of course, we, the sort of the management, if you like, the suits, um, can't control the ultimate product, which is the football. And so, you know, we can get everything right in terms of the logistics of moving people to and from the stadium, the food and drink service at the stadium, people's entry into and egress from the stadium, how great the sight lines are, how wonderful the stand is and the visual entertainment on the big screens and so on. But what we can't control ultimately is what people most care about, which is winning football matches. Mm. So what we try and do is we try and create an environment where winning the football match is really the icing on the cake. It's clearly the most important thing for football fans at the end of the day. But if we can actually make sure that everything that goes around the game is as good as it can be, then when the result doesn't go the way our fans want it to go, then at least they get some benefit from the day itself and the way it's been managed by the club. And, you know, that sometimes takes a little while to sink in. For some people, it's an immediate sort of balancing act. Well, we've lost the game, but we've had a good day out. For some people, it's a few hours. Others, it's a few days. And some people, it's never. The result is absolutely everything. And the the beer and the food can be as good as, as anything they've ever tasted. But if the result is not the right one, it doesn't matter. And as a football fan, you know, from you know the age of six or seven myself, I can totally relate to how the day's result can impact on the experience you've had at a game. But that is something we we still focus very much on here. We have very strong core values within the club, and and you know those values include treating people well, making their experience with us special, and those values are, are something that run very deep with us, and you know go into a lot of the work we do around our match days. Mm. And it genuinely, I mean, I, you know, I can relate to that as somebody who uh, in normal times would be up there, certainly every home game. And um, I've done a few aways as well. And you can draw comparisons between different clubs. And I, I suppose, I, I think it's even been remarked that you go to quite a length in terms of making the away fans experience a good experience as well. I mean, that sounds like an obvious point, but it's perhaps not, from my experience, everyone's... Um, uh, experience of different grounds. So it's not it's not so obvious, and this is one of the things that's always intrigued me about the football industry. And even before I, I worked in it full time, that you know, away fans are a, a very important part of the match day experience up and down the country. The atmosphere that's generated, and you know, ultimately the revenue that's generated, because you know there is a requirement within all the league rules to provide capacity for away fans. The way we look at it is, we would rather have all of the away capacity full. We'd rather have those fans treated well and spending money with us than treated badly and resenting us. Not only does that affect the, the, the general business of the club and the revenues that we generate, but it also impacts on our staff who have to manage the visiting supporters. If we treat visiting supporters badly, our staff get treated badly in return. And that doesn't work for us as an employer. So, you know, our attitude is we'd rather have a full away area we're very confident that 27,000 Brighton fans can out-sing and out-shout 3,000 visiting supporters. So, you know, the fact that we encourage that area to be full is not detrimental to our own club or our own team. And while those visiting fans are here, you know, we make sure that they're looked after. So, you know, rather than walking into an environment that the lighting is blue, which are our club's colours, if they're the visiting team playing in red, we'll make sure the environment they're moving into is, is a red environment. If we're going to sell any merchandise, we'll sell their merchandise we won't try and sell our merchandise to them which would make no sense and similarly you know if there's a particular beer or a particular food type that the visiting fans are used to back at their own ground we'll try and bring that down to brighton and sell that to them as well because again we've got a very limited time in which to generate revenues you know we've got on average you know 20 21 match days a year in our stadium and we've got to maximize every one of those match days from a revenue point of view and the 3,000 visiting fans that will typically attend those games are an important part of that. And, you know, we've got two choices. We can either treat them badly and wonder why afterwards they haven't really enjoyed the experience or spent any money with us, or we can treat them well and the opposite is true. And from our point of view, treating them well and generating income from them makes absolute sense, both from a business point of view and a sporting point of view, because if we can generate more revenues, we can then invest those revenues in our own team. So, you know, from our point of view, it makes absolute sense. Not every football club sees it quite like that, but but we do. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm sure it makes a, a huge difference. I mean, again, 
I know a few away fans that have visited. Um, I was talking to somebody from Liverpool uh, last year who was sort of saying, you know, it's actually a, it's a nice day out coming to Brighton, apart from the fact they come to Brighton and spend some time in the town and what have you, actually yeah. coming to the stadium and, um, you know, they, they do feel welcome, genuinely so. Okay, great. I mean, you, you mentioned there about sort of some of the facets of, you know, the journey and everything else. I mean, you consider the fan journey, if you like, the whole end-to-end, do you, in terms of the anticipation, the build-up, and, and thinking about that whole end-to-end experience, getting them home safely afterwards? I mean, you, you consider yeah, that in that link? Very much so. I mean, we, we, you know, for us, the, the experience starts when we start the communication pre-match, and, and that tends to be digital these days. We want to try and let people know what they can expect when they get here. If we're aware of any potential transport problems, we want to try make people aware of those before they start to travel. If we're going to have particular entertainment pre or post-match, we obviously want to promote that and let them know so they can plan their, their, their journeys accordingly. If there are going to be any restrictions on the day or any issues on the day, for example, there might be a new security alert, in which case you know, we, we will try and advise people to arrive earlier because they're going to be subject to more checks we try and start the, the, the conditioning process, if you like, of, of what people can expect when they get here as early as we can. We've also got, the, at the moment, during the, the COVID period, we've got our match programme still being produced, but being sent out uh, in advance of the game. So people can, even if they're watching on TV, they can still enjoy a normal or more normal match day experience by receiving their match programme at home. And that's gone down very well with people. And we also have an email that that, that tends to focus on just the general sort of Q's and A's that we get by phone during the week leading up to the games. We try and encapsulate as many of those frequently asked questions as we can in advance of the game. That does two things. First of all, it keeps the supporters informed of, 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 of the key issues that we've been dealing with during the week, but it also takes the pressure off of our own staff who can then start to turn their attentions to delivering the match day experience live, if you like. Mm. Um, likewise, when people arrive at the stadium, you know, we want them to immediately feel comfortable. So we've got a lot of what we call here to help stewards who are jacketed and, and, and brightly coloured so that people can um, identify them easily and ask any questions they've got. That particularly works well for people coming here for the first time or if they're visiting supporters. And then, of course, there's the, the, the regular fans who, who will know exactly where they're going, don't want any help, but want to make sure that the food and drink that they're, they're used to is, is going to be in plentiful supply when they arrive. And, and again, we, we, we make sure that we have a very, very good handle on the types of things that are selling well at any particular point. So if it's a very hot day, we know that cold drinks and beer and soft drinks are going to be in higher demand than if it was a, a colder day when hot drinks would, would be more, more likely to sell. And we try and manage our catering arrangements as well as we can by being observant of the environment, being observant of the conditions that, that we're facing on the day. Similarly, if there are any transport issues that become known to us during the game itself that are going to affect people's journey home, we'll make sure that we communicate those either via our PA system or via the big screens or by our app, which um, we obviously in, in encourage supporters to download. So there's a variety of different methods in which we're, we're going to be communicating with supporters. We're just now going into another investment phase in the stadium where we'll be upgrading our digital technology so that we can actually communicate more with people through screens, yeah. through the app, through the big screens in the stadium, which are, which are going to be replaced during the next sort of few months. And again, trying to create an experience around the main experience that people care about, which is obviously the game. And as much as we can do to make sure that people get here on time and safely and leave here safely and get home on time, everything in between then, where we can control it, we try to, but ultimately the vast majority of people judge us on, on the result. And uh, <laughs> as I said before, that's something which is out of my direct control. And that's where we very much rely on our colleagues in, in, in the technical areas and the football areas to, to, uh, to deliver for us as well. Yeah, of course. And in all of that stuff you talked about, which again, you know, I experience it, I, I relate to everything you're saying, so it's great to hear you talk about it. I mean, did you, when you designed that, did you actually sit down and do journey mapping, customer journey mapping or planning like that? I mean, what kind of tools have you used? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, one of the key things about this stadium, which is probably different to most around the country, is that we got our planning consent based on having as fewer private cars come to this area as, as, as possible. So we've got a, a transport plan that is very much integrated within our matchday operations. So we have park and ride facilities. We integrate the price of travel to and from the stadium within a certain zone. 
in the price of the ticket so that if you live within the zone you know your transport costs are 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 subsidized by the club and covered within your your ticket price which takes a lot of pressure off of people it means they've got one bill to pay if you like for their football which includes their travel and we've done various sort of experiments where various including myself have taken the park and ride facilities have taken the privately booked supporter buses so that we can experience what it's like to come to this stadium you know, without the benefit of our cars or, or without the benefit of using normal public transport, such as the train and local bus services. So we test out those things. We test out how long it takes, what it's like on board, when those transport methods arrive at the stadium, how they're greeted, where are they situated, how easy it after the game to get back to them. Is it well signposted? Is there anything we can do to make it easier? And what about, of course, disabled supporters? How are we accommodating them in all of these different methods of transport. And not all disabled supporters will come by private car. In fact, most won't. So we've got to make sure that the other modes of transport that we rely on for stadium matchday operations are catering for our disabled supporters as well. So a lot of considerations, a lot of planning, a lot of constantly refining the processes. What works one season may not necessarily work as well the following season, and certain dynamics locally can change that. We might have a park and ride site that has worked very well for three or four years, closed down for a period. The new site that we select doesn't work as well for, for various reasons. So again, the process isn't set in stone. It, it's constantly subject to refinement based on the feedback that we receive and, and also from our own experiences, as I say, of using it. I mean, that's absolutely, you know, exactly how I'd expect someone to, to manage a customer experience almost by the textbook. So again, no surprises that you end up with the uh, the outcome that you do. I mean, in terms of the feedback, I mean, just, just picking up on that point, I mean, obviously you've got some very noisy fans who are giving you very direct feedback on the day about the uh, the main event itself. But, and again, football fans aren't that shy in terms of coming forward on Twitter and other things in terms of, um, you know, uh, if you like letting know their uh, their views on things, but do you have a, a kind of a structured method of gathering balanced feedback about the whole experience? And then do you kind of sit down and meet about that as a specific thing? So you're you're kind of you've know, got some governance wrapped around it. I mean, how how does it work? Yeah, I mean the, the great the great thing about football, as I said earlier, we're, we're probably the most scrutinised industry that I've ever worked in. So we try and anticipate any issues that we might get from external sources by having a match day survey, which fans can complete after every game. We have an annual survey, which goes a lot deeper into what's happened during that season. You know, how have you enjoyed it? What's worked, what hasn't worked, areas that we can improve, areas that you think that we are inadequate. So for example, um, a couple of years ago, we we introduced free sanitary towels for, for, for female fans in the female toilets. And again, that, that came as a result of feedback saying that that would be a very welcome addition in the female toilet areas. It was, again, for us, the right thing to do and a small thing that we could do to, to, to make life easier for female fans, make life better for female fans. And that came as a direct result of the annual fan survey. Similarly, we've adjusted some of our park and ride arrangements from the same survey. We've introduced free Wi-Fi in the stadium a few years back, again, as a result of an increasing demand for better Wi-Fi coverage and, and better coverage of mobile for mobile phones generally. So these things are, are not just important parts of understanding how fans are experiencing what we do, but they're also helping us to develop the business to make it more sustainable and better for the future because the more we can actually meet the fans' own expectations and, in some cases, demands, the more likely they are to renew their season ticket, the more valuable that is to us to have that, that security and that, that confidence from the fans. And therefore, the more confident we are in investing in players, facilities, and so the, the virtuous circle is created. So those sort of things are very important. We also have a lot of mystery shopping that goes on that we right. engage and that also the Premier League engages. So... Now, there are times when, you know, the, the constant scrutiny is self-imposed and, and actually it's a good thing because as much as, you know, we ask fans directly what they think and they tell us very directly what they think, it's also good to have experienced professionals that are working from a, a structure of important touch points for fans. And then we get some more structured feedback. We can actually use that, compare and contrast it year to year, that the Premier League create a league table, you know, in the last four years that we've been in the Premier League, we've been top twice and second once. So we're, I think we're very good at, at what we do. But that's 
a very, very sort of dangerous sort of position mindset mm. to have. You know, you can very easy, easily become complacent. You can very easily become arrogant. And we're very keen not to. And the great thing about our supporters, as you'll know, is that they're not backwards at coming forwards when it comes to giving their opinions on anything. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. So from that point of view, you know, Twitter, social media generally is a really good barometer for how we're doing or not not doing so well. And the great thing about a club of our size is that we're able to move quickly to change things. We don't need you based on social media reactions because one bad day doesn't mean the system as a whole is bad. But what we can do is we can move quickly when we ourselves know that what's happening has happened before, but this is the first time it's just been noticed. And, you know, hopefully by then, by the time it's come to the attention of the public or the fans, we've got a process and a solution in place where we can actually correct it very quickly. It's not so easy when you're you're running a much, much bigger club with a much, much bigger stadium to make those kind of tweaks. But, you know, we're a nice size. We're we're, we're not a small club, but we're not a big club. We're a medium-sized club with a medium-sized stadium. And that enables us to move very quickly when 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 we sense that things are not quite right. Yeah, no, great. And again, you know, textbook <laughs> in terms of it, it sounds like you've got every base covered and uh, uh, I can't think of another technique you could probably use. So uh, great to hear. And I'm sure listeners will, will take a lot of heart from uh, the way in which they might do things. You know, it sounds like you're doing very similar stuff and um, this is all about giving people ideas as well. So thank you for that. Just turning to 2020, I mean, obviously it's been an exceptionally challenging year for for many people in so many ways. And you must have faced a lot of challenges this year, um, leading a club like Brighton. Given that you have been, and it looks like you're going to continue to play behind closed doors, how have you had to adapt in order to maintain some kind of connection with the fans or an understanding of the things that you've just been talking about? Well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge at two levels. First of all, each match that we play behind closed doors um, is costing us well into seven figures of revenue that we had budgeted for. So... There's a big financial hole there that we're not going to be able to recover. And of course, that financial hole creates pressures on budgets internally that make it difficult then to reinvent the fan experience in other ways because the budget isn't there to do some of the things we'd love to be able to do. That said, we're trying and we're trying on lots of different levels. You know, the first and most important one is to make sure that in Premier League meetings, we were voting in favour of methods where fans could continue to see all of our games live. That's very important. It hasn't always been well received by all of the fans because pay-per-view, which is one of the options that we've uh, voted for, is expensive and, and therefore has met with some resistance. But faced with a binary choice of, you know, will fans be able to see every game live as opposed to not being able to see the games not scheduled for TV... For us, it was absolutely the right and proper thing to make sure fans could see the games live. The price set by the broadcasters is clearly the wrong price, but that's a that's a side issue. So seeing the games live is important. Trying to recreate the match day experience as best we can is important. So we've continued to provide pre-match bulletins. We've continued to provide the match programme, which is delivered to people's homes. We've continued to engage online. So you know, rather than uh, having fans in the stadium where we would engage directly, We've been doing a series of Zoom calls, myself, Graham Potter, some of our other staff, to try and make sure that fans feel like they can still have that direct engagement with us, ask questions, you know, feel connected to what's going on at the club, injuries to key players, transfer targets, what we did in the transfer market, what we didn't do, why we did what we did and why we didn't do what we uh, fans might have thought we we might do. Um, All those things are actually working as well as probably they could do if we were holding those meetings in one of our lounges in the stadium because, A, we can get more people on a Zoom call. You know, I think the last one we did had about 1,200 fans on it. And secondly, you know, if we're prepared, which we are, to commit time, you know, it's a good way of directly talking to people and, and really addressing any issues or concerns or questions that they've got. In addition to all of that, we've tried to maintain our, our sponsored delivery program. So whilst we can't do a lot of the things we would normally do face-to-face with the players, we've tried to do it digitally online. We've tried to engage supporters in, in, in different ways through the sponsors, so competitions that we run through our social media accounts or through uh, local media or national media in some cases. All of those things have, have tried to replicate as best we can in an imperfect world an environment that people are missing very much. And I think probably overarching all of that and and probably the most important thing we've done is that we've tried to lead from the front when it comes to getting supporters back into stadiums. 
And, you know, what we have to balance in that campaign is being seen to be irresponsible and insensitive to what's going on with the virus. And and clearly the loss of life and, and people's loss of jobs are far more important than people coming back to football. But coming back to football is our business. It's how we protect the jobs in our industry. And it's how we also provide people with somewhat, something to look forward to that is part of a way of life in this country for, for many, many people. And so we want to try and restore some degree of normality to that as quickly as we can, provided it's safe and provided it's not putting additional pressure on the NHS at a time when it least needs it. But if we don't apply that pressure, if we don't try and encourage government to allow us to have fans back, then sooner or later, there will be a pinch point that costs jobs in our industry that affects our community indirectly because we sustain a lot of jobs that the football club's not directly responsible for, but are suppliers to our industry, that are partners to our industry. And we want to try and limit the damage of this virus in our industry as far as we possibly can. So I think the combination of, of using digital techniques, campaigning where we can, engaging in different ways where we can, and making sure that people can still see us play football and therefore don't get out of the routine of watching us play are all things that we've tried to do during this pandemic. And what's it been like for the players and staff at the club? I and mean, obviously the lifeblood of the whole club is is the kind of the build up to the actual event itself, the, the match day experience. I mean, it must have been quite hard to keep people motivated given the fact that they, they don't have the buzz of <clears throat> that event taking place on a regular basis. Yeah. It's very hard because, you know, one of the best things about working in a football club is the club. It's about being together, working towards a common aim. Not all of us can play, not all of us can coach, but all of us can play a part in giving our players and coaches the best possible chance of getting the best possible result. And when you're working from home, when you've got 350 disparate full-time staff who are effectively working in 350 different offices day to day, the, the sort of the feeling of club, the sense of club is lost. And therefore, it's very, very hard work to, to maintain the momentum and, and, and sort of motivation that we would normally have from all being together, either here at the stadium where I am now or at the training ground where I am a couple of days a week. But of course, we're still having to play matches. So we've got this sort of unique challenge really of, of trying to comply with the government's rules and guidelines on working from home and minimising uh, unnecessary travel, but at the same time continuing to play football matches, albeit with no fans in the stadium. So we're in this really strange position where, you know, we're not key workers, but we are required by government or expected by government to maintain our match programme. So at the moment, we've we've got a, a sort of a routine within the stadium where, or in, within the club where, where we have a home match, we, we, we tend to work Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays. And when we have an away match, we work Tuesdays and Thursdays. So roughly 50% of us are in 50% of the time in order to deliver 100% of our matches. And that's a complex model of being physically in our buildings, but also available remotely by Zoom and by phone constantly. And that's been a real challenge over the past sort of seven, eight, nine months as we've worked through the first lockdown. We just started to get people back into a a pattern of work back in the office. And then, of course, the second lockdown came (laughs) and uh, all of that was was scuppered again. But we're not the only organisation or industry in the world going through difficult challenges at the moment. And, you know, we're lucky that the vast majority of our income continues to come to us via television companies but it's not the same and it's not the same without fans and you know it's not the same for anyone in the club because you know we all exist to put on a performance on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon or a Monday evening whenever the game is and there's something missing in that performance when you haven't got the 30,000 people in the audience to, to witness the hard work that's gone into the the previous week's preparations and mm. that's a great shame yeah it almost feels surreal that we were ever sitting in a in a crowd like that at the moment. I mean, I'm I'm hoping that it just flips, you know, as and when some good news this week on vaccinations and things coming through, and uh, the the day that we return to a full stadium and actually there doing it will, will be a very happy day and a, a, probably a, a celebration. You'll be struggling to get people out of the stadium. I would have thought so. Well, you know, it's funny. You know, for 25 years, one one of the great privileges I've had of working in football is that I absolutely love being in an empty stadium in normal times. The sad thing for me is I now hate being in an empty stadium. And, you know, it was, it's the strangest feeling to try and articulate because it was, as I say, it was a privilege to be able to come into a stadium environment every day. And sometimes 
when you need a bit of thinking time, just go and take a seat anywhere in the stadium and, and use the emptiness of, of 30,000 seats around you to, to think through a problem or to think through a plan that you, you've been working on for some time or even to take one of the staff members for a chat, a quiet chat about you know what they've been doing, what, what you want them to do differently or whatever. But now we all really resent the emptiness of the stadium. We, we, we find it really unnerving and, and uh, quite disturbing because it isn't ever filled with the people that we've always looked forward to to filling it on a, on yeah. a weekly basis. And it's changed the entire dynamic. And, you know, I've spoken to a few colleagues about this up and down the country and other clubs, and they feel the same. You know, we all have this, uh, we all have this sort of almost resentment of, of empty stadiums, on, on particularly on a match day, which yeah. has actually impacted our feeling towards the empty stadium on a non-match day. It's very strange. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I know what you mean. When you go on a tour of a stadium, I've done a few, and it's kind of awe-inspiring because of the size yeah. of the space because you don't normally sit in a space that size, do you? But I, I no, get what you're exactly saying. Right. It's and very it's interesting. A, it's, it's a real, it's it's something which uh, we really want to to get get through as quickly as we can. And of course, you know, it's just that balance, as I said before, between not pushing ourselves forward inappropriately or insensitively, but at the same time trying to get government to understand that we've also got to protect our own business and the jobs within it we've also got to pay our own bills and the only way we can we can do that successfully and fully is to have some degree of normality return quickly for sure and i mean this year is not just been about the pandemic there's been all sorts of events which you know there's been a lot of coming together within communities as a result of pandemic but also there's been a lot of inequality prejudice hate all surfaced this year and and called out in some respects and it's had some profound impacts quite visually within the premiership for example at the start of matches i mean how, how has it affected you and what do you think the lasting impact of this year is going to be on on football and perhaps even more broadly than that the club and, and society well i think We've always had a, a policy here of zero tolerance for, for, for any kind of bigotry, any kind of discrimination. And at times over the years, you know, we've been criticised for having a zero tolerance policy and, and quite a, a tough sanctioning policy for, for, for when that, those incidents occur. We never apologise for that because we've always believed that it was the right approach. And I think what's happened in the past 12 months has kind of brought to the surface, you know, some of the reasons why we've always insisted on a zero tolerance policy because if you allow any kind of tolerance of of any kind of bigotry or any kind of discrimination sooner or later it becomes a cancer that can very quickly take over society and we've always felt that we needed to play our own very small part in eradicating any kind of uh, discrimination wherever it existed however it existed as quickly and as firmly as we could and that policy will will certainly continue now more than ever and, you know, we are, you know, sometimes shocked and, and always saddened by some of the things that we have to deal with. And football's often highlighted as, as being a problem area. And, and I understand why. But it comes back to that point about scrutiny and profile. You know, I don't believe someone's a racist in a football stadium, but not a racist outside. You know, they, they are a racist. Uh, unfortunately, football stadiums tends to be where the behaviour is highlighted and therefore, you know, we're left with the problem of dealing with it. We've often said that we will deal with it when it's on our own property and in our own premises, but we then expect the authorities to deal with it even more firmly when we take action. And all too often in the past, unfortunately, you know, the clubs, not just ours, but up and down the country have taken strong action only to be let down by the authorities who don't take strong enough action. And there's only so much football can do. But we'll continue with our, our campaign and we'll continue with our, our zero tolerance policy. We want people to come here and enjoy themselves, whether that is with a, a winning football team or a football team that, that doesn't produce the result. We want the environment to be as safe as possible, as welcoming as possible, as inclusive as possible, as diverse as possible. And we'll continue to fulfill those aims. Yeah, well said. And. I mean, what you're talking about there is is about the inherent culture within the club that you're creating. You talked earlier about your values and things. I mean, in my experience, organisations that deliver consistently great customer experience have a very engaged and happy people working for them. You know, they have a team of people who who kind of get why they're there, but they get something a bit more than that in terms of they can feel the culture that they work for and they connect with it. And I think it was in 2015, I mean, apart from the fact that it was a good year on the pitch, I seem to remember, Brighton enjoyed you know, a lot of success off the pitch. And you've got the 2015 Football Business Awards. You were named overall best football club to work for. Best community scheme for non-Premier League at the time. I mean, 
why do you think the club was recognised for that? Is that something that you very deliberately set out to do in recognising the connection and the importance of the fan experience, you know, coming right through into the, the culture? I mean, how has that come yeah. about? It doesn't happen by accident, does it? No, uh, it doesn't. Uh, but for me, the, the consistency of behaviours of our staff and the consistency of the culture of the club are more important than the awards. That You know, they're nice to win and we're always delighted to win or receive recognition for, for what we're trying to do. But I think when you've got a very clear vision, as we have, you know, our original vision was to try and become a Premier League club. We achieved that. We've then adjusted it to stay in the Premier League. We're achieving that. It's an it's a ongoing process. And, you know, last year we set a new vision to try and become a top 10 club in, in the Premier League and a top four club in the Women's Super League. Now, they are long-term stretching ambitions, but in order to achieve them, we want people to be guided by a very consistent set of values. So, you know, we, we have five values and, and they're quite simple. Act with integrity, treat people well, exceed expectations, aim high and make it special. Those five values guide the behaviour of our staff on a day-to-day basis and they guide the recruitment of people on a day-to-day basis and they also guide the performance appraisals of people on a day-to-day basis. You know, we want to be the best that we can be because we're in a, a top-level sport and a competitive industry and a results-driven industry, but we want to achieve our objectives in a way that is consistent with those values. And if we've got someone who is a very, very high performer, but they don't treat people well or they don't act with integrity, then they leave us because we don't put performance above the values of the organisation. If we've got someone that treats people well, acts with integrity and is doing their very best to exceed expectations, but whose performance is not quite at the level, we will help them as much as we can to reach the required levels of performance. And if they can't, it could be that they leave us as well. But what we do is we provide far more latitude and support for someone that's meeting the values and striving for the performance than we do for someone that's exceeding the performance but not meeting the values. And I think it's really important if you're to establish a very distinct culture for an organisation that you understand that there are consequences to living by values, both ways. You know, sometimes you might have to be patient with someone who's underperforming but meeting the values, and you might have to be pretty tough and ruthless on someone that's delivering the performance but is wreaking havoc with the club's culture or the business's culture. And, you know, these are very deliberate decisions that you have to make at the highest level of the organization otherwise they become not something that people are prepared to engage with because they don't believe you they don't believe that the culture is real they believe it's just words and we talk a lot about our values being actions not words behaviors not words and after a while you know what happens here is that people don't talk about the values at all but you can see that they live them And that's really important. And we sometimes in an interview can tell within the first five minutes whether someone is going to be the type of person that's going to fit with the culture here or the type of person that that, that won't. And that can make an interview quite short, but it's a very, very useful way of our our managers of hiring people. You know, they, you know, we we don't let anyone into an interview if they haven't got the the qualifications required for the job, they haven't got the experience required for the job. The thing we're really testing in in the interview is whether they're going to fit the culture of the club. And that's that's very important to us. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I can certainly, that resonates with my business in terms of how we, we think it exactly the same way. You know, they kind of, they get to first base because we know they can do the job. It's whether they can do it in the way that we'd like them to do it and conduct themselves that way. So absolutely. And I'm just sort of slightly connected point around culture. I mean, Albion in the community is the official charity of the club. I mean, how important is that as part of the culture of the club and in terms of both how you connect with the local community, but also having staff buy into that and be you know part of it in some way yeah it's really important to us because again going back to what our business is you know we're a results driven high level sport that wants to set out to win win in the right way but set out to win nonetheless and what albany in the community does for us is it provides us with a, a means of engaging with a wider community not just the fans but the wider community with a softer edge and a more caring and focused edge on, on people's lives as opposed to just winning football matches. And the combination of the two, if you can get it right, actually helps the, the club's overall brand. It, it, it actually helps us attract commercial partners because they can see that we're not just about the sport, we're about our place in the wider community. And this football club was, as, as, as you know, saved by its fans, saved by its community. And I think the club will always 
feel a sense of, of responsibility for and a debt to that community. And so Albion, Albion, the community, the charity, provides us with a way of, of getting out there, looking after people that are more vulnerable, supporting people that need more help than perhaps you know they're getting from their the normal everyday lives during the lockdown we're able to use the charity distribute meals to to people that were struggling to to put food on the table provide phone calls to to more vulnerable members of the community i mean that involved the club and the charity and and also to fans that were isolated perhaps on their own without family nearby all of those things actually contribute to i think the well-being of the club as well as of the community i think we all got a huge amount of personal sense of pride from calling as we did 10 15 people a day to check they were okay during the first lockdown that work has continued we've now called over 10,000 people since march to check that they're okay and in some cases get their food or in some cases collect prescription drugs for them in other cases just simply to knock on the door and make sure that they answered it. You know, small things, but but actually they made a huge difference. And Albion in the community led that work for us, you know, supported by the support services team within the club. But they continue to be a, a critical part of who we are and how we operate. And, you know, we're very proud of the work that they do. Yeah, I'm not surprised. And I mean, that whole thing, certainly in a local context, just elevates, if I could put it, the brand of the club. You think of the brand as the entirety of the club. It just, yeah. it becomes completely part of the fabric of the local community which is uh, i think it also comes back to the point i made earlier about you know results are really important when you're you're playing top level sport but the way you conduct yourself is just as important and, mm. and that means off the pitch and in and around the the community as well as on the pitch and in the stadium you know we we, we expect our staff on a match day not to get too carried away by the win or too low on the loss and 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 when tempers fray and emotions run high to be the guys that are cool and focused and not losing their cool to the detriment of the club's reputation or the club's brand and sometimes that's really hard you know it's hard for me it's hard for everybody in the club because we care about the results but we also care more about the longevity of the of the club's brand and the longevity of the jobs that that it sustains. So behaving properly, conducting ourselves professionally is really important on a match day as well as on a non-match day. Yeah. And uh, someone said to me that, you know, a lot of memories are created at football grounds, you know, for, for a lot of reasons. A, because people are passionate about the sport. And I, I think back to the, the promotion. I was there on the day that you promoted to the Premiership with my son and some friends and... It's one of those things, you know, you genuinely, every moment of it was imprinted, certainly on my memory in terms of the, just the jubilation, but also the kind of <laughs> just the things that were going on and everyone was just so happy. But I mean, again, you know, obviously there are some negative things. So you do remember this stuff because it's passionate and it's, it's, it's emotionally driven, isn't it? So It is. And, you know, sometimes you know, this is one of the, the stranger parts of running a football club and particularly for our support services team. Now, we're the first people called after there's been a bereavement in certain families you know people will contact us to notify us that a loved one has died on the day that it's happened and i always after 25 years find that the most incredible thing because very often it's the football club that they are most closely connected to outside their immediate family that you know the person was a season ticket holder so they want to be practical and let us know that they won't be coming to matches anymore but i always find that quite incredible that Mm. people do that and sometimes our support services staff are, you know, on the phone for an hour to someone who's just lost someone very close to them. And again, I find that quite incredible that it's the supporters, the support, you know, the supporters rely on the football club to be that first or second or third port of call in that situation. And um, again, I think it comes back to the football club being at the heart of the community, being trusted, being trusted to do the right thing, say the right thing. And that's a big responsibility that we carry. And you know, again, I, I'm not, thank you for sharing that. It's, that is an incredible thing to hear. I'm always amazed and, and almost humbled by whenever there's a memorial to somebody who's been a fan and, and has died up on the screen and the respect with which the people in the stadium will applaud for a minute or whatever, you know, is, is the, the memorial thing that you're going to do and including yeah. the away fans. And it every time it happens and, you know, then kind of like you get back to the game and, and that's the end of it. But it is, it's, uh, it's very humbling when it happens and it, it's a, it shows that real connection with customers, if you like, you know, your fans as customers as well. So. Yeah, it's, al- it's almost always impeccably observed. And, uh, you know, as you know, we've had some, some tragedies here. We had the Shoreham Air disaster in, in 2015 where we lost 
a member of our own staff and, and, and someone that was also very close to him, who was also close to us. And again, the respect that, that the fans showed towards those individuals and also the other people that lost their lives on that day showed just how important the football club is to the wider community and how it can be a source of comfort for people at a time they most need it. So during this pandemic, as I said earlier, I think it's been absolutely essential that we've placed ourselves at the heart of the community to try and support where we can. You know, we're not social services, we're not emergency services, we're not the government, but what we can do is provide some support in those areas where there are obvious gaps. You know, the government are not going to call out to five, 10,000 people to check they're okay, but it's something the football club can do. And when you're not playing matches as we were, uh, as we weren't for three months, you know, we've got time and we can deploy that time to do things like that, which costs us nothing, but actually makes a big difference to people. And I think that's what football clubs, you know, could and should do in situations like that. Yeah, it's an amazing story to hear. Thank you. Just sort of closing up now, really, something I ask all my guests, really, and I'm just sort of getting a sense of you and <laughs> kind of what makes you tick as well, really. But, um, you know, what do you think being truly customer-centric means? Well, I think there's the it's the technical business-focused attitude, which is about making sure that, you know, you're satisfying your customers, in our case, our fans, as successfully and as profitably as, as you can. I mean, that's one aspect to it. But as I said before, I think football clubs are more than that. I think it's much more about satisfying people emotionally and supporting them emotionally at, at times. And, you know, for me, when we get our, our customer surveys, our fan surveys back that tell us that we're doing a good job, that we're looking after them well, that they feel safe, that they feel like we have good policies and strong policies to make their experience with us as good as it can be, then I'm very satisfied. I'm very happy. I'm also happy when we get negative feedback and we're able to quickly turn it around. You know, there are times when, you know, football clubs, because they're made up of so many moving parts, one of those moving parts just isn't functioning as well as it it might. And because there are so many, it might not be one that's immediately visible to us, but we get told about it and we can fix it. And I think we get a lot of satisfaction from being able to do that sort of thing quickly and then getting the feedback that says, wow, you know, you've been really responsive. You, you've actually listened to us. You've actually acted on the feedback. You don't just ask for it and it goes into a, a drawer never to be seen or heard of again. And that can be just as satisfying as getting it right first time. Yeah. And can you think of an experience that you've had personally that really defines fantastic customer experience? And that doesn't have to be in football or anything to do with Brighton. It can be any, anything. Can you think of a, something you think, yeah, that's, that was great. That, I remember that. Yeah, I suppose because of my job, I've travelled a huge amount over over many years. So I, you know, I'm a great sort of customer of airlines and hotels. And I think when any, anything ever goes wrong in what is a sometimes a complex logistical trip for business, and the airline or the hotel has been able to sort of anticipate the knock-on effects of whatever's gone wrong, I've always been really quite sort of you know pleasantly surprised by that. You know, you're you're on a flight and it it, it gets delayed and your connections you know, clearly going to be missed as a result. But the airline has anticipated that, has sorted out another flight, may have even called ahead to the hotel or even booked a hotel because you're not going to get to your destination. I think in those situations as a, as a business traveller, that takes a huge amount of stress and strain away from, from the trip. And it seems ironic to be talking about that since I've not got on the plane for business in many, many months. But but actually, you know, over over sort of, you know, 30 years, I suppose now of business travel, you know, I've always been sort of um, slightly mind boggled by, you know, the complexity of international travel and how it all works and how efficient it is, relatively speaking. And, um, you know, there's always issues, but when they're dealt with, you know, very well, I'm always, you know, very grateful and, and, and you know, not always sort of pleasantly surprised because they're very good at, at running those businesses, but but always grateful for the support that I get in that situation. And any particular horrendous thoughts around a, a customer experience you've had um, without naming maybe the organisation involved? But. Oh, I've had a few disasters with cars. I've had a few disasters with holidays over the years, which again is ironic considering business travel is one of the highlights. But but again, I, I think um, you know, I think every every organisation in the world has had an example of where they haven't got customer experience or customer service right. And every organization has a right to put it right. And, um, you know, in most cases in my life, I've always been able to at least make the complaint and see some kind of resolution that's been, you know, 
broadly to, to my satisfaction. So I suppose I've been lucky. But there are times when you all of us shake our heads, you know, some of the biggest brands in the world when they get things wrong. But knowing what I know about how a football club works and how many moving parts there are just within our relatively small industry, I, I know how things can go wrong. And I know that particularly when you're relying on human beings, human beings, however well-trained or well-educated or, or well-briefed, sometimes just have bad days. And, you know, we are as strong as the weakest link in our human chain. That's very forgiving of you. Um, I might be as forgiving on the day it happens. No, but... I was going to say, uh, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll wait and see uh, next time I bump into you somewhere when you've got a, an irate moment and see. But, uh, <laughs> and, and final question, which, um, again, I, I'd love to ask people, is, you know, is there anything you could share that you could never have learned at business school that you've learned as a leader over the, the last 25, 30 years of your career? Uh, in, 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 without a doubt, it's always about people. Uh, it's always about the way people's lives affect what they can and do do on any given day. And, you know, it's very, very difficult sometimes to understand fully why someone isn't always performing at the highest level that they can. And particularly in an elite sport, you, you know, you forget sometimes that highly tuned and highly trained athletes also have, you know, human feelings and emotions and human issues and problems that can get in the way of performance. And that's the same right the way through the organization from top to bottom, however experienced someone is, however qualified they are, something going on in their lives at any given point in time can affect that performance. And I've, I've learned over the years to try and understand better why someone is not performing before judging their performance. And invariably, there is a reason for a, a lower level of performance than, than what you might be expecting. And sometimes that reason is is self-inflicted, in, in which case, you know, perhaps your sympathy level is not as high as it as it might be. But in most cases, there is something either outside their control or not totally within their control that is having an effect. And I think in that situation, you a you could be more forgiving and understanding, but also at that point you can provide more support. And if you can do that, and if you can identify that, and if you can take that moment to try and uh, understand then very often you can get that high level of performance back faster. Mm. Uh, when you're judging someone without understanding why, um, you can quickly or easily make rash decisions, which you then later regret when you find out, well, that person wasn't well or that person's partner was suffering from a, an ailment or they've just had a terrible experience on the way into work or, or whatever it might be. So, yeah, that's probably the thing that business school doesn't teach you because it's all about, well, if you if you hire the right people and they're educated in the right way and they're trained in the right way and they're motivated in the right way, they're going to fire on all cylinders all of the time. Well, that's actually not true. <laughs> the way it is, unfortunately. Yeah, no, very true. Very true. And just finally, Paul, I mean, what, what do you think the future holds? I mean, do you think that football is going to continue to adapt and evolve? And obviously, we've got some short-term challenges, which we, we all hope will be behind us at some point in the not-too-distant future. Do you see a, a, a major evolution in the way that football serves what it serves to the public and to its fans? Or is there any, any particular thoughts you have around how this industry might develop over the next few years? Well, the great, the great thing about football is that it's been 11 v 11, you know, on a, on a, on a surface with two goals for a long, long time now. Um, and fundamentally, that isn't going to change. But I think with technology improving, with broadcasting capabilities improving with the way people consume sport live sport changing you know if i watch it, if i've looked at my own kids over the last 20 years at how they can consume live sport you know they, they they watch the game but they've got a device in one hand and invariably <laughs> another device in the other hand mm. um, that's not how i grew up watching live sport i was totally focused on 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 the action i wasn't worried about what people were saying on twitter or other social media so that's evolving and changing. And I, and I think the one thing that shocks all of us in sport at the moment is, is just the, the increasing prevalence of esports and, and how people are engaging, not only playing esports, but watching esports. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in, in Asia particularly, you know, there are tens of thousands of people gathering in stadiums to watch two kids play football on a screen. Um, you know, <laughs> someone said to me 10 years ago, that was going to be a threat to, to this business or my business. I, yeah. I would, they were crazy. Interesting point, yeah. But it actually yeah. is. And yeah. um, you know, there are lots and lots of people now that are that are watching football that isn't actually real football. You know, it's actually, you know, generated by FIFA and EA Sports. Great game that it is and great people that they are. You know, that is a potential threat to our, our business, or at least it certainly needs, we, means we need to adapt 
to that growing trend and that slightly different kind of uh, perspective on our sport. So it will evolve, it will change. We need to adapt, we need to be flexible, we need to be open-minded, we need to make sure that not everybody in the football club is my age, that we employ a lot of people that are in their early 20s who understand this dynamic better than, than, than someone of my age does. And that's, again, a big change for football clubs because traditionally football clubs have employed lots of the same people for many, many years. Now we need to be open-minded to employing, you know, not only much younger people, but perhaps people with a very different skill set, perhaps people that don't really care too much about what happens in the stadium itself, but actually care more about what happens outside of the stadium. And that's a very different way of thinking for football clubs now than it would have been even five years ago, let alone 10 or 20. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Paul, we've reached the end of our time. Thank you so much for for being so candid to sharing such you know, insights into how the club runs and your thoughts on all things related to customer experience and the club and, and the future of football. So thank you very much indeed. I hope our listeners have learned something about you, but also there's a, a lot about your philosophy that I think people can take away from this. So thank you very much. That's no, a pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Cheerio. Thanks very much for listening today. If you found that useful, please give us a like on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And if you'd like to know more, you can find us at penpartnership.com or you can follow Pen Partnership on LinkedIn. Until next time, goodbye.